Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. The NBA playoffs are in full swing, and we have coverage across all of our channels to keep you up to speed as we make our way towards the finals. Make sure to check out the Ringer NBA show for daily coverage of the games from each series, and theringer.com to read Kevin O'Connor, Dan Devine, and the rest of our NBA experts break down every key matchup. And don't forget to tune in every Sunday evening to the Bill Simmons podcast to hear Bill and Ryan Russillo's NBA reactions from the weekend. As always, these can be found on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. David, Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes turned heel against his old pal Mark (laughs) Zuckerberg this week. What I want to know is... Is it okay for us to mainstream the phrase turned heel? Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up because the ringer.com reputable <laughs> website, the ringer.com used the phrase turning heel or heel turn in, in reference to a certain game of Thrones character four times today by my count. Yes, that is it. it I'm, I'm happy that wrestling parlance is, has, you know, anytime it, it, it busts into the mainstream. Although I think we all, all wrestling fans got a little bit beaten down by the Donald Trump is pro wrestling uh, um, (laughs) essay fest of uh, 2016 to present. But yeah, I mean, listen, it's important on the Chris Hughes front to point out that just because you turn on your partner doesn't necessarily make you a heel. I think if you're if you're cutting ties with the with the with the behemoth of Facebook, you might be turning babyface for the first time in your uh, in your wrestling (laughs) career. So it just depends on who the evil guy is and who the guy from the forces of light is. Yeah, listen. you're saying you're saying you're saying this is actually no, this is actually a different wrestling reference. You're saying Chris Hughes turned face. Yeah, he's turned. I, I that's that would be my t- right off the top take. No, I mean I don't. I'm not some doctor. I don't have some hard and fast opinion on the evils of Facebook. Uh, but I would think that that would be Facebook. Legit- yeah, <laughs> turn Facebook. <laughs> well, you build just because you build it into the name doesn't mean that you're that that's what side of the spectrum you're on. I mean, listen, you can toss your partner through a plate glass window and then strut in your you know shirtless and a leather jacket, and it's clear that you're turning heel. But there's definitely some splits, even violent splits, where you know the the the, the active part, the actor, the aggressor uh, ends up. Um, you know, more of a fan favorite than before. And I think that's what we're looking at with Mr. Hughes. Mr. Hughes, also a great wrestler. <laughs> we are the Bog God, that's so-and-so's music of media podcast. This is the Press Box, <laughs> a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast. We are not allowed to be late with your post-presidential memoir. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of the Ringer here with three topics for your pleasure and amusement. First, David, Howard Stern has written a new book. And according to the journalism angle du jour, Howard Stern has matured. What do we make of the king of all media's grown-up period? Second, ha-ha right-wing wonderkin Ben Shapiro got owned on television. We mostly laugh, but we also at marvel at the invasiveness of the British celebrity interview. And finally, Kamala Harris became the latest candidate to reboot her presidential campaign. What does it say about Harris, and what does it say about reading the tea leaves of the Democratic Party? All that plus the notebook dump and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, David, by the time anyone is listening to this pod, Howard Stern will have published his third book, which is called Howard Stern Comes Again. And by the way, David, can I tell you how (laughs) 90s that double entendre of a title is? Doesn't it remind (laughs) you of the old days when... Howard was on FM and would talk about someone pleasuring themselves. Like we were just 
taking this whole language of FCC mandated language. Very funny. Anyway, if you've read anything from Howard's media tour, and I know you have, yeah, the takeaway seems to be the journalist marveling at the way he has matured, the way he has evolved. He's not a shock jock anymore. He's a long form celebrity interviewer. What do you make of his purported transformation? Well, I mean, anyone of our generation who, who you know, grew up more or less listening to Stern, I'm sure remembers that one of his biggest points of discussion all along the way were, his, were the various imitators, various pretenders to the Stern throne. And I think that, you know, and, and, and this is something that you've talked about a lot um, and written about, too. You know, there were wannabe Howard Stern's uh, filling up the airwaves during his peak. But I think more significantly, he influenced the entire subsequent generation of radio and television personalities. And so that combined with the sort of general moral decline of the culture, <laughs> and broadly <laughs> stated, I think made anything that he was doing, you know, I don't know that there's really a, a place for shock jocks anymore, at least not not in the same sort of sphere, that same that same mode of like just sort of poking the bear, you know, rabble rousing, that sort of thing. I think you have to have a much different tack to be, to, you know, to be that sort of offensive these days. And it's and and it's just hard to be what Howard was. And I think that that coupled with the fact that he has certainly evolved as a human being, and a lot of that has come, I think, probably with his time on, you know, with being on Sirius and not being in direct competition, looking at numbers every day to to see what to you know to, to sort of put him in the position of constantly upping the ante. Yeah, it's a two track evolution, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I do think reading the interviews he did one with David Marchese in the New York Times, another one with the Hollywood Reporter, that he has gone to a lot of therapy. He has obviously discovered some things about himself and sort of rethought a lot of the stuff from his radio days. And I believe that there is that part of this is a sincere transformation. I also believe part of it is probably commercially minded. I think these things tend to be complex and we try to reduce them to one thing or the other. And in fact, usually with humans, they're both. And, you know, he even said in an earlier interview, I saw that, you know, he was worried about his relevancy and doing those kind of jokes about race, about women, about sexuality in 2019 ain't going to do it. And when there's YouTube and all kinds of ways to be quoted instantly and to get in a totally different kind of trouble that he got into, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it just doesn't work. You know, I think there's a commercial imperative too, where it's like, if I still, if I want to be big now, or I want to be maybe even different than being big as being respected, I do need to enter this kind of grand old man of radio phase where it's like, oh, you know, hey, you know, he's the guy who gets stuff out of celebrities. He's the guy who can sit down the other day with uh, Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen and do this big interview that everybody was quoting to me last week. I just think that is interesting. As a longtime Howard Stern fan yourself and listener, when you read these pieces, do you begin to think that people who are writing them maybe didn't listen to him 20 years ago? Because am I wrong or wasn't he a good celebrity interviewer back then too? Like this isn't just totally new, is it? No, but I, I, do, I mean, I think even if you were listening to him 20 years ago, I think that the, I think Howard being a great interviewer was sort of, you know, would have been a little bit of a take, even though it's absolutely true, right? I mean, the the conventional, I mean, the, the, the overall opinion of him had little to do with his celebrity interviewing. I mean, it, I guess complimenting, complimenting Howard Stern's interview skills in the 90s would, you know, is kind of like reading Playboy for the articles, you know? <laughs> 
with you, though I do feel it became a take. It became one of those takes, let's call it early 2000s, where everybody would start saying, you know, actually, Howard Stern is the best celebrity interviewer. And for the next 15 years, everybody thought they were making an original point. Yeah, or having a controversial take. And in fact, everybody had been saying this. I love this little story in The Hollywood Reporter. Stern, I'm quoting here, points to an early 2015 interview with Gwyneth Paltrow that weaved its way from a discussion of relationships to one of oral sex as a major turning point in his career. And here's Howard talking. Had I said to her, Gwyneth, do you blow your husband? I'm an asshole. But sure (laughs) enough, we start talking and she's fascinating and I'm getting to know her. And then she goes and then Gwyneth proceeds to describe a sexual act uh, on her own volition. And then Howard says, so she took me there. Now, now wait a second. (laughs) So the idea is in either approach, you really just wanted to know about Gwyneth Paltrow's sex life. But (laughs) but the idea is you just went a different (laughs) way to get there. I I guess I don't quite see the moral thing. And again, I, I, I totally believe that he's a different person, but I thought that was really funny. I wrote a piece about Howard Stern and his um, relationship with sportscasters who are fans of his. And one thing that Joe Buck told me, Joe Buck, a longtime Stern fan, and then later a Stern guest a couple of times, is he said the biggest thing about his interviews that struck him, one, that he actually pays attention to what you're saying and he rolls with you when you answer questions rather than just kind of asking you know, what, what's next on his list. And he said the other thing is his he's just so self-assured for a guy who has made his entire living off describing his insecurities. He is so secure in himself that he can just watch you and be like, I know what to say next. I know exactly where to go with this. And Buck's whole the whole thing with me was like, he always says, in other words. So you give an answer and then Stern goes, in other words, and kind of restates what you said. And that's him kind of buying time thinking about what to say, and then, boom, he hits you with the next question and tries to dig deeper. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, anyone that's done any sort of interviewing, I mean, live or, you know, in, for print or anything else, knows that, like, the, I mean, that's the key, right? That's that's the, the hardest thing is to stay absolutely present and to be so prepared that you always know where to go, but to be present enough to take what your subject is talking about and, and, and lead that to somewhere interesting. I mean, I, I think it's it's impossible to, to overstate how, much his, you know, no matter how much he's changed, how much his history, uh, you know, affects the way that he interacts with people. The fact that he, he he got such high ratings, you know, for so long that he got every celebrity that he wanted. You know, everybody that was doing a press tour came in and they all knew what they were getting into. And I think that the Gwyneth Paltrow example is, is, a, is a pertinent one because I think that, you know, she might have gotten to that to that line on her own, but she wouldn't have gotten to that line in any other interview, right? I mean, she she she, I'm sure, came prepared to have a certain sort of discussion on the Howard Stern show, whether or not that was outmoded or not. And even and even during his heyday, I mean, we, I mean, I remember you could especially see it on that old E show when they had the television show that was like clips from the day's episode or whatever. Some of the even like the raunchier parts of the show, you could just see him sort of enduring, even at the peak, you know, because like people would come in and he would just sort of be there, you know, there'd be the sort of like put on thrill. But um, everybody would just roll in, like knowing what it was to perform on the Howard Stern show. And that, you know, your mileage may vary on how interesting that stuff is <laughs> in retrospect, but, but even, <laughs> even Howard, you know, it seemed like was just, there was a certain, obviously a titillation, but there was, but like I said, it, it seemed like he was just kind of, kind of enduring some of that at the time. Yeah. He, he had some interesting things with Marchese to that effect where he said stuff like, I was just trying to get people to pay attention to me. So I would say things that I didn't believe because I would just. 
I was so all I wanted to do is lock down people's attention at 15 minute intervals. And even he would, he would cut off otherwise interesting guests and just blurt things out because he was afraid the guests were boring the audience. So like he had Robin Williams in there or something. And you know, it was one of the, one of the things in the book, he regrets how he handled a Robin Williams interview, but he sort of thought he feared Robin Williams was boring. Just imagine that by the way, Robin <laughs> Williams, who was, who was, who did what Howard Stern did every time he went on the tonight show and just lit up the place. He, mm-hmm. he feared Robin Williams was boring. So he would cut him off. Here is um, this interested me. This is Stern uh, talking to CBS's Tracy Smith the other day when asked by Smith, what makes you a good celebrity interviewer? Why do you think it is that celebrities open up to you? I think what happens is they, and I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this. You know, my whole career has been about honesty, painful honesty, you know, penis size, insecurities. I hate the way I look like right now. I'm so aware of this camera and, I have my glasses off and I look horrible. You don't. Yeah, well, thank you, but I feel that way. And so, uh, you know, I think that kind of honesty, when people walk in, um, they feel that expectation that maybe they should open up. That makes a lot of sense, too. You know, if Howard has (laughs) confessed everything, then surely I can talk about, you know, my bad relationship with my dad. Or uh, my divorce from my first wife. This is not me, by the way, talking. This is this is hypothetical celebrity. Uh, my divorce from my first wife, whatever it is. And, you know, I'm never going to go as far as he did. I think that's powerful, too. Yeah, I think that's right. We can talk about it all we want. I mean, there's there's a there's certainly an aspect of it that's just there's that certain something that only he has. You know, there's a way that he, he can make you feel at ease enough to talk about that. And And obviously, there's people... All different types of celebrities and, and, and people in politics and everything else. People that would never say that kind of stuff. And they, they you know, found their way to saying it on the Howard Stern show. I mean, part of it, I think, you know, at the time, and this is, you know, we'll talk a little bit about our president, but it seemed like you it was sort of an opportunity to say something in a safe space, right? There's part of it that like you're, you know, it was accepted if you were there, if you were on the air. It was at the time, it was it was part of the, you know, you were part of the performance. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who are just dying for opportunities to say some of the stuff that you could only say on the Howard Stern show. There's also the radio aspect of it, the the volume that he produced. And our uh, our producer, Evan, was, t- was saying before we started recording that, you know, he found some Stern fan pages where they're just like trading old, you know, just like bit torrents of, ra- of episodes, like, like they're trading cards or whatever. I mean, there was certainly the, the aspect of it to which, like, you would do an interview and it would be lost to history immediately. You know, I mean, like, it's not unless it was picked up on the E show. I mean, wh- like, who's recording this stuff? You know, I mean, and there is there is a safety to that too. Yeah, they would just disappear in the radio airwaves. I like your thing about a safe space. I also think there's this weird process now where every celebrity he goes and does the interview and does it with any level of honesty comes out more liked than when they went in. Mm-hmm. And I know on driving driving around listening to Sirius, sometimes I'll be like, "All right, the David Crosby interview." Now there's somebody I don't care about at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who I probably just viscerally don't like for no reason at all. But then you listen to him go like an hour plus with Stern. You're like, "Man, that was awesome." Yeah, that was that was incredible. I heard Melissa Etheridge, and I'm like, "Oh wow, Melissa Etheridge is badass." That, that's not <laughs> an opinion I ever had. I had no opinion. But anyway, I'm just like. I just think that's so funny because I think 
that's actually to me the most surprising thing because you know his old his old personality is him screaming at Richard Simmons or something. Um, and you you just kind of think coming out thinking Richard Simmons is crazy and weird and all this stuff, but his new personality somehow transforms the celebrity into somebody like like I said, likable or cool, who's had this incredible journey that you've been on. It's it's really wild. I think that you know you can talk about sportscasters or whatever. I think you know that the obvious you know an ascendant of that is is podcasts, right? I mean, how many times have we? I mean, and, and I and I'm sure that a lot of podcasters, the best ones, like Marin came out of radio. I'm sure you know there's a lot of connectivity there too. But you know, how many times have you listened to that long form podcast and been like? Oh man, I really like whatever athlete or comedian or actor or whatever better than I ever thought I would, and it and it doesn't really click until a few minutes in, and it takes a great interviewer, and it takes you know a link a period of time, which only Howard Stern is one of the blessed few that that got that sort of time to interview people. He earned it, obviously, but but he was the only per, you know one of the few people interviewing at that length for years. I, I don't know if you're talking about long form podcasts with a capital L or a lowercase L, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad to, it's the latter. On Donald Trump, Stern tells David Marchese of the New York Times, Donald is a well-guarded personality. I think he's actually so emotional that somewhere along the line, he had to close it off. That's a valuable technique for people who have been traumatized. Donald has been traumatized. Make no mistake, I believe his father was a very difficult guy. That's an interesting insight. Also on Tiger Woods, I love Howard Stern, the sports media critic. Uh, He says, you hated him 10 minutes ago. Then he got the ball in the hole and you're redeeming him. Why did you hate him in the first place? You probably shouldn't have hated him then because what did his life have to do with you? And now that he was able to be number one at putting the ball in the hole, you love him again. I don't know. That's I kind of wish I'd written that piece. Also in random Stern news, stuttering John Melendez also has a book coming out. (laughs) Uh, Go on. Yeah, he tweets. I find it very odd that Howard Stern is coming out with another book two weeks before mine. What does he need to buy another house in Fiji? <laughs> I just, I just one that that Stuttering John has a book at all, but two that he would think that Howard Stern's giant Simon and Schuster book release was just programmed to to ace his book out. I love that. That's um, good stuff by Stuttering John. There. All right, David. Now it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Can I start with an overworked Twitter joke lawsuit for you? Did you happen to see the piece Conan O'Brien wrote in Variety with the title My Stupid Lawsuit, where he discusses the fact that he settled a case with a man who had claimed that O'Brien and his writing staff stole jokes oh, from right. his Twitter account uh-huh. and also stole jokes <laughs> from this guy's blog? O'Brien's piece, on the one hand, is this very carefully written thing where you can see that he's come to this uh, conclusion where he's trying to uh, concluding the case and doesn't want to, you know, to overrun anything, but essentially he's making the point that it's sort of impossible to write original joke comedy anymore. He is yeah. essentially just talking about the overworked Twitter joke of the week in his way. And that, you know, we all come up with the same lines at the same time. And he even cites some of the times that he and multiple late night hosts had the same joke on the same night. It's just funny to me that we gave everybody the tools to write gags. And and this is the reason we do this every week, because it's just funny. And that everybody comes up with the same jokes. And (laughs) even the professionals come up with the same jokes. The people who are paid to be funny. Anyway, that's funny. Anybody who wants to uh, check that out, please do. In other overworked news, here's a tweet from The Hill, David. 
Sarah Sanders, who is, of course, Trump's press secretary, hopes people remember her as being transparent and honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was an overworked Twitter joke to have some fun with that. I really hope people will remember me, uh, someone tweeted, as a power-hitting gold glove center fielder for the Red Sox. I hope people remember me as Olivia de Havilland. What a pull that is. <laughs> I hope. And finally, I hope I'm remembered for winning the WWE heavyweight championship and <laughs> an Oscar for my performance as Godzilla. Thanks to Josh Sandin for that one. Some uh, overworked Twitter, low hanging fruit. Did you see the uh, new coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers is university of Michigan coach, John Beeline. Yeah. Uh, it was a very easy overworked Twitter joke to say. You could say he made a beeline out of Michigan. <laughs> Thanks to Cheesehead Sportsnut. It was a very overworked Twitter joke that I don't quite understand, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna catch up when I get back to the States. Uh to say next week on Game of Thrones, the Targaryen administration announces infrastructure week. Um <laughs> I think believe that <laughs> I believe that has to do with a plot twist. Thanks to Skirt Rambus for that one. All right, David, topic number two. We gotta talk about Ben Shapiro. Oh man. Okay. How much did you enjoy? This is mostly a ha ha. I've got very little agenda here, but how did you, uh, how much did you enjoy the Ben Shapiro uh, clip of him getting interviewed about his new book on the BBC? I mean, I'm glad that we're doing multiple segments on new books. I think just for the literacy of our country, that's an important step. Amen. Yeah, that was a, uh, it, it was, it was quite a show, man. I mean, just one of the, one of the all time, uh, I don't know how deep I should get into this right off the bat, but I mean, the reason why this is great for anyone who's wondering like who the hell is Ben Shapiro or why do we care? Ben Shapiro is the, I would say the, the leading sort of new media conservative when it comes to X destroys Y YouTube videos. And he is, uh, you know, amongst a younger audience, I think the sort of, you know, the, the sort of icon of uh debate club conservatism. And and obviously he's very young and that's part of his calling card too. He's been around since he was a, a wee lad. So yeah, it's pretty impressive though that his greatest moment in the sunlight exists only on kind of ironic terms, right? I mean, the reason why this is blew, blew up so much is because he got destroyed. He got owned. He got, you know, his he got served up what he purports to serve up on a regular basis. And now it's it's, you know, it's online everywhere too. Yeah. I was also struck. I mean, I mean that that's the first part of this, right? Is you get out of the nice bubble where people who like you are interviewing you, or you're just destroying college kids who are kind yeah. of helpless. Yeah, and it, it goes badly. The second part of this, to me, that's even more interesting is just the fact that you submitted to a British interview and kind of belatedly found out what a British interview is about. Uh, his <laughs> interviewer on the BBC was Andrew Neil. Who Shapiro at one point, should we listen to a little bit of the end of this? Yes, please. Evan, could we play just a little bit of the end of uh, the greatest interview in the history of books? And I've never heard of you until I briefed myself for this, but that's not the issue. You have a then new why the book hell are you interviewing it's, me, an in, it's an interesting book. But my point is your book claims that society- Well, it'd be society, nice if you would quote it from time to time. Your book is, well, actually I've done so several times and I'm about to do so again, if you would let me just finish the question. Your book no, frankly, claims I don't think that society you know what? Honestly, is turning honestly, its back- sir? on Judeo-Christian values. Yeah, this is, what, are those values what, uh, what, what are the values it's turning its back on? I, I, you know, I, I'm not inclined to continue an interview with a person as badly motivated as you as an interviewer. So I think we're done here. I appreciate your time. All sir. right. Thank you well, so uh, thank you for your time and uh, for showing that anger is not part of American political discourse. Now, Mr. Shapiro, we'll say goodbye. <laughs> 
amazing. Oh my goodness. His entire reputation is sort of, ba- or not a lot of his reputation is based on this this sort of boast that he could, you know, that if given equal footing and a and a and a fair playing field and even playing field, he could beat any lib in a debate. And he goes up against someone who's not even a liberal and who's not even trying to debate him, and he just sort of melts under the pressure. It's it's a little bit of a mind boggling, but you know, thoroughly enjoyable experience. Yeah, I mean, if anybody who thinks that, um, as Shapiro did briefly, that Andrew Neal is a liberal and that that was the reason he was questioning him roughly about his book, uh, I would invite you to check out the political positions portion of Neal's Wikipedia page, especially his uh, views on climate change and HIV AIDS. (laughs) Uh, He is not a liberal. Uh, In fact, uh, runs the company that owns the media company that owns the Spectator, the long-standing conservative magazine. The funny thing about this is, is I think Shapiro's just so not used to television interviews working like this. I have no doubt in America that lots of print interviews work like this, where the person asking the questions is, you know, being skeptical is playing devil's advocate is taking flimsy ideas and challenging the person who's being interviewed or on the book tour in this case to try to to defend them or to try to bolster them. But that doesn't really exist on television in the United States outside of what, like the political Sunday shows, maybe? I mean, I, 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 I was just thinking about this while I was watching this clip. What on American television is like this at all, even with, you know, polite sort of pushback? Yeah, I mean... Certainly not much when it comes to to politics, right? I mean, it's you're, you're you either I mean you're almost always going into friendly territory, and when you're not, you're kind of very aware, immediately aware that that's where you're headed. Or you're you're you don't you, I'm sure you get a heads up from your publicist. Um, it's sort of surprising that he that he was that he was so surprised or so caught off guard by this interaction. But but yeah, I mean, I just can't imagine as crazy as it is, I just can't imagine any place, like you said, for polite pushback. And you could tell by his answers to some of these questions about early abortion and various other things that he just was either not in the mood or not prepared to uh, to, to answer these questions. <laughs> Before I came, we did the pod tonight, I was at a uh, thing that The Guardian had here, and it was The Guardian Live featuring Tony Blair. And it was like mm-hmm. an hour and a half. And what was so funny, it was it was a journalist from The Guardian interviewing him. And of course, what Tony Blair wanted to do more than anything was peacock about Brexit and lay into everyone left and right who was responsible directly or indirectly for the Brexit mess that the UK now finds itself in. But the interviewer was like, let's talk, hey, Mr. Blair, let's talk about your, for like 20 minutes about your immigration positions when you were PM and just roughed him up really, really nicely. Again, not being impolite, not destroying or owning anyone, but just actually having a semi-confrontational, tough interview. And a crowd that was overwhelmingly pro-Blair loved it, as far as I could tell, because it was actually a stimulating discussion. And it's the way you're supposed to interview people. I always think like Isaac Chotner, who's a pal of mine, does those interviews over The New Yorker. I think those are great. And I think he's really, really talented. But I think part of the reason people get such a charge out of those on Twitter and elsewhere is because they don't read anything like that. Yeah, that just do- that doesn't exist in their media diet at all. And when they see something like that, they're like, "Yeah, finally, 
and it's and it's and it's a it's a deficit in the United States. It really is because almost I I mean I was watching Blair tonight. I was like, what American president would a be treated like that? And by the way, b submit to an interview like that, you know, in front of a crowd. Like, what, what it just be like if you George W. Bush going to go do that? Is Obama going to do that? No, they're not for the most part. Clinton's certainly not going to do that. They'd rather do a roadshow with with Hillary. Yeah. I just think that's a really interesting thing. And and <laughs> again, of all people to just step into the booby trap, uh, Ben Shapiro really is. And and by the way, if you want to hear the fun is wait till the um, BBC panel discusses the interview after Andrew Neal signs off there. One of them calls uh, Shapiro a nitwit. That's <laughs> uh, another great highlight. So just Brit's oh. talking about Ben Shapiro. What a what a time. To, at the risk of walking headlong into our own overworked Twitter joke, there was a great, I mean, there, there's been a nice little meme that's, that I saw a couple times that juxtaposes two Shapiro tweets, one from May of 2014, where he says, the right side of history may be the most morally idiotic phrase of modern times. History is not God and has no morality. And then, of course, from very recently in 2019, my new book, The Right Side of History, is out today. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. He just, he keeps on giving. If you're a podcast and a movie fan like I am, then you need to check out Luminary. They've just launched a bunch of great original shows that you can only find on their platform, including a spinoff of our show, The Rewatchables, called The Rewatchables 1999. I'm also excited about a brand new podcast called Poetics with Amari Hardwick. Rewatchables 1999 dissects the most iconic movies from 1999, an all-time great year in film, which you might have read about here on The Ringer. Each episode breaks down a different movie with highly specific categories, analyzing it from every possible angle. Most rewatchable scene, who won the movie, best quote, could this be movie be made into a Netflix series in 2019, etc., etc. And over on Poetics, Amari Hardwick, star of the hit television series Power, has a new podcast that invites you inside the minds and lyrics of the biggest names in hip-hop and the culture. Every show, Mari invites his guests to share an original poem or verse before diving deep into stories and history that give every word its meaning. The Illuminary app is free to download, and you can use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including the ones you already love like this one, all enhanced by an easy-to-use interface with personalized content recommendations. Whether you're into movies, music, sports, comedy, or more, Luminary has the right show for you. If you love podcasts, then you need to check out Luminary. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash channel 33. After that, it's $7.99 a month. That's luminary.link slash channel 33 for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash channel 33. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. Giannis Atentacumpo is the only player ever to get his signature slipper deal. Hulu is paying Giannis a lot of money to wear fluffy green Hulu has live sports slippers. I wish I could have a pair of those slippers while I'm watching the playoffs in here from London live on Hulu. They also got Joel to change his name for the process to Joel Hulu has live sports Embiid. Also, Damian Lillard got a tattoo that says Hulu has live sports. It's the most blatant form of advertising ever. Clearly, they really want you to know that Hulu has live sports. And then you can watch live sports and news, your favorite teams, and the biggest games on the top 60-plus channels for just $45 a month. That's right. Follow your teams all season. No cable required. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Learn more at Hulu.com. All right, David. Topic number three. 
We've been covering some of the Democratic presidential campaigns, and I thought we should get around to Kamala Harris, uh, because even though the primary is only a few months old, we already have a, another reboot. So Beto O'Rourke rebooted a couple days ago, and now Kamala Harris, according to the New York Times's Jonathan Martin and Asted Wesley, is attempting to, quote, reset her campaign. You might remember that Harris had 20,000 people at her first rally in January, but since then, her polls haven't gone anywhere. And what's happened is she's sort of stuck between being a centrist former prosecutor and trying to ride the leftward wave of the Democratic Party. Martin and Wesley write in the Times, some Harris advisors and allies have winced at some of the senator's overtures to liberals, such as calling out for the calling for the eliminating private health insurance and refusing to rule out letting prisoners vote, dot, dot, dot. These supporters believe her pool of attainable voters sits squarely between the center and the left. What do you make of Harris attempting at this early stage to recalibrate her campaign? I mean, the other thing I heard today was that she's, you know, that Iowa voters are salty because she hasn't been spending enough time there. She's kind of putting all of her chips in the South Carolina basket. It just sort of feels like, I mean, I, I, the connective tissue there is just that it's, I don't know, just like a, an overabundance of gamesmanship of, of, uh, of, of <laughs> like trying to figure, I mean, this is not exclusive to Kamala Harris by a long shot. But also just like the way you're seeing now with the, the, the you know, there are all these rumors are going around of a potential Biden-Harris ticket, like that they are already in discussions about it. Is it too much to ask that people just go to Iowa and try to get votes, you know, and kind of see where everything shakes out? I feel like the more that we, the, the more that politicians try to game the system or, you know, or it makes it more difficult to vote for the best candidate. All the gamesmanship in the world is not, doesn't necessarily add up to winning an election. Do you feel... Uh, and I'm sure they have like sophisticated polling things that we don't have access to. But do you feel the Democratic candidates are wrestling with the is Twitter real life question that we've talked about on this pod a couple of times? Yeah, I think they certainly are. There's a degree to which it, it, it's it's inevitably real because that's going to be, you know, the first the first responders to anything that you do or say. Right. And that ends up shaping news coverage and that ends up shaping the popular opinion. But the question about whether or not they're indicative of anything other than just some number of hundreds or thousands of voices on Twitter. I mean, I think that's something that these candidates are dealing with every day. Jonathan Chait has this big piece in New York today about this very idea that, and part of what he says is he doesn't think the Democratic Party's has really gone to the left as much as it might appear. Um, and one of his the arguments he makes is that, or one of the pieces of evidence he points out is that, you know, AOC has in many ways become the face of the Democratic Party. And there's two forces doing that. One is Fox News, which would love to have her be, for their own gruesome reasons, the face of the Democratic Party. Absolutely. And then the second force is allies of AOC or people on her side of, uh, of the party who, of course, also actually do want her to be the face of the Democratic Party because they like her politics more than they like Joe Biden's. But it creates this kind of media sense that the Democrats are in one place. And then you look at the polls and Joe Biden is beating everybody's brains out in these admittedly very early polls. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kamala Harris is it was in that article I just quoted, you know, making these overtures to the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, essentially, and getting nowhere with them and then thinking, wait a second, maybe this isn't the way the wind is moving after all. And I should just 
run for president as who I am. I, I just think that's fascinating because it just, to me, it's all gets down to how much of the energy in the democratic party as it's comes out in the media is just, you know, shock and awe and how much of it is actually the party and its voters moving one direction. I think that's a a really valid question, but I think that it's difficult. I think that that's an issue that that candidates and and the voting public and and we and journalists uh, should be wrestling with on a regular basis. I also think that there's a certain sort of candidate that that will transcend the problems that the, that this system you know that 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 juxtaposition creates and uh, and and maybe in some ways it is a good it's a good testing ground to see how the various candidates deal with such things. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they'll bridge the two uh, parts of the party or maybe they'll be just like Hillary Clinton and just win anyway. Yeah. And, and then, (laughs) and then the party will have to figure it out. You mean seal the nomination, Brian, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) And to go back to the, the Biden Harris point, there is a big piece in, I mean, a piece in Politico today where uh, congressional black caucus uh, senior members are uh, putting forward this idea that Biden Harris would be the dream ticket to beat Donald Trump. So, I mean, <laughs> I this is this is silly season already, though, don't you think? I mean that 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 actually would be an appealing ticket for the Democrats in a lot of ways. But this just feels like, oh my God, we, we're this is a new and dangerous phase of the of the media where we're already into dream ticket phase. It is, it is, and, and 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 listen. I mean, you can you can uh, have great affection for both of these candidates, and I have some measure of affection for both of them. But I mean, as well as Biden is doing in the polls, as uh, you know, intriguing as as the Harris candidacy has been. I mean, both of these campaigns have been politically um, just sort of caught flat-footed at various points already, and uh, I, you know, this feels more like a PR push than an actual strategy. All right, David, let's do the notebook dump quickly. Topic number one, the most important news story in the world. Barack Obama is taking too long to write his book. This is from Edward <laughs> Isaac DeVere over at The Atlantic. Obama's memoir, which many people had thought was going to come out in 2019, won't be published this year, according to a person familiar with the writing process. What do you make of Obama taking some extra time to really you know, iron out those transitions, <laughs> make sure his kicker, chapter kickers go well? Well, you know. I, this is listen. This is the this is the this is what happens when you hire someone to write a book and they actually write the book. You know, I mean, if it's, it, I mean, I, I remember mm, when both no when when both the uh, both both Clinton volumes came out and you were just like, wait, they wrote like this person wrote eight hundred pages in the time between. I mean, and if you know the publishing industry, I mean, that was probably you know delivered nine months before the book hit the shelves. I mean, just they they turned these around so quickly, often with the, almost always with the help of uh, some degree of ghostwriting. And um, you know, I'm sure that that Obama is probably getting some some amount of help, but he's uh, always been a very proud, you know, author. And my guess is that's what's holding up the process here. What do we make of the end of Edward Isaac Devere's tweet, where he says, "According to a person familiar with the writing process, is that is that like a joke on the basketball source close to the process thing?" It must or is be he right? serious. I, I God, I hope so. I really hope so. <laughs> Um, loyal listener Bent Kazemore <laughs> noted something, David, that I also noticed last week, which is that a few times you've referred to the Democrat primary, uh, the Democrat, yeah, and party, yeah, instead of the instead of the Democratic primary. Which somebody of sent was me a, a direct message about this, and I went, I didn't, I did actually, I meant to, I meant to mention it. It might be the same person. <laughs> what do you have to say for yourself? 
This is that's a hypercorrective, I believe. I think at some point it was locked into my head that people say this incorrectly, and I uh, and I end up doing it just like when people overuse "I" when they should be saying "me." Um, I've 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 ruined the way that my my brain works and my mouth works by trying to be more right than is necessary. David is not a right wing apparatchik. In case anybody <laughs> could not tell from the rest of the podcast, uh, I mentioned this earlier, David, but Kamala Harris is not the only one rebooting. His or her campaign, the AP reports that Beto O'Rourke is, quote, reintroducing his candidacy. (laughs) (laughs) It's time. He hasn't gone viral. And O'Rourke will appear on Maddow and The View, if he has not already, uh, to reintroduce his candidacy. So we're officially at Beto Reboot. I just love this because it's it's such a great. These uh, both pieces included lots of you know, really interesting details about what the two candidates were thinking, but it's, it's sort of a good way to get attention, isn't it? To say, I'm going to, I'm ready to reboot my candidacy. Like yeah. That's, I, I'm going to go to the press and say like, ah, it's time for some change boys. Let me let you in on my thinking here. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it you know, I mean, I'm sure that there's some, some advisors that would say it shows weakness, but I think it also, you could say it shows some, you know, f- flexibility. Uh, and you're right. It does. It does get attention. Now it depends. You know. I guess it, it remains to be seen how hungry for attention some, someone like Better Work will be. I mean, I, I think that appearing on Maddow is a good move. And, and at times, I wonder why you know these series, these these top line candidates aren't spending more time on MSNBC. I, I, you know, at least on the the primetime shows, but especially in the primary season. But uh, you know, the View. I mean, I guess we, we. I wonder if there's betting odds on whether or not Beto will be standing on the uh, standing on the table. During his appearance there, I think that'll that that'll tell us a lot about how hungry for attention he is. <laughs> and that was part of the reboot that he had to stop standing on tables. I mean, he he Beto was weirdly shamed in so many different ways upon getting into the primary. It is that is just a just a just a weird wild story of uh, someone getting in with a ton of attention and then bombing out really quickly. The only other thing I have down here is the um, Trump calling. Buddha judge Alfred E. Newman <laughs> and which was one, an incredibly dated reference as yes. Buddha judge was quick to capitalize on number two. I am genuinely interested. What, what should the media do when that happens? Because there was a Politico story going around about this. I get, I think the interview where he gave it was Politico and there were like three authors on it. Uh-huh. Everybody's making fun of it. What do you do when Trump, says something like that like how how do you handle it that's a great question i have no idea i, I mean do you i mean because are you talking about had a response there's a back and forth so that's a thing but he just is it just buried in an interview train i mean what politico's doing i think you could probably argue that politico doesn't really think it's that important anyway but it kind of comes down to do we aggregate our own interview transcript or just leave it in a piece and let somebody else find it? <laughs> uh, that's one of the big. That's one. Of, that's one of the the you know the great discussions in modern media. Do we self aggregate? Uh, yeah, it, it's a that, that Politico is not exactly you know it's not a you know pop culture website that could that could put up a listicle about you know ten times Alfred E. Newman entered politics or whatever. But uh, but but there does seem to be a little <laughs> bit. It does seem to beg for a little bit of uh, explanation or backstory there. I want some uh, some of those funny Mad Magazine headlines from our youth where it would be like NYPD blue cover and it'd be like NYPD black. That would be there. <laughs> Just so somebody throwing up or something like that. Yeah. I did find this funny. for I, I even tweeted this from the Politico story. So 
they're writing about Trump in this in this uh, the Alfred E. Newman bit, and they, and they quote somebody anonymously. Listen to this: Trump believes if you can encapsulate someone in a phrase or a nickname, you can own them. A person who knows Trump said in a recent interview. Low energy Jeb, little Marco, that kind of shit really diminishes people and puts you in control of them. And that's what Trump is a genius for doing. Now, did we need to grant someone anonymity to say that Trump is trying to own someone or control them by giving them a nickname? Did we not? Did we not know that? I mean, that's just like, what? No, it's that's really so bizarre. funny to me. Like, what? That is just really strange. All right. Time for David uh, guesses the terrible pun headliner book title. Oh no! Okay, David. How about do better segment. this week? Let's go. All right, come on. Do you? Uh, I had a couple of options, but should we just do stuttering John Melendez's memoir? Oh my gosh! <laughs> the, the difficulty here. The difficulty here is that is that he's he's certainly done other memoir. He's written other books, right? He has. I mean, I would assume that he that in the Howard Stern private parts heyday, when like everybody was churning out books, I assume that he had one. It is. It's hard to imagine he hasn't. But I'll, by the I'll way, say why this. was why was Howard Stern's book not called The Second Coming? I guess he's done more than two mm. books. He's already done a second book. So, yeah, um, it'd have to be the third. All I, right. I believe this is. I believe this is Stuttering John's first book. But this is. I'll. I'll give you this. It could be the. T- it is kind of like a generic Stuttering John memoir title. If you want to, if you really, I mean, I, my, for some reason, maybe I'm just stuck in the '90s. My brain immediately goes to Stuttering John's Bathroom Reader, which would be funny if you <laughs> are familiar with a certain sort of publishing from the '90s. Um, yes, that's funny. How about the uh, Did I Stutter? Ooh, that's pretty good. It's not it. That's pretty. It's not it though. Dang, no. that's what I would. Uh, uh, um, you're right going to the one thing that people know about Stuttering John, though. It is, it is a speech-related book title. Fun, uh, t- talk. Uh, dang. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I think I've gone as far as I can go. The memoir title is Easy for You to Say. Oh, that's great. Pretty good, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. He got some good advice. I'm, I'm very excited to see what Stuttering John has to say after a, a lifetime you know, working in media. Maybe maybe young reporters that listen to the show can can get something valuable from that. Yeah, how to ask funny questions to Walter Cronkite on the red carpet. All right, that's the press box for this week. He's David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Evan, the man. We we do we do we do we, do we thank Jim Jim Cunningham at this part, or do we do we thank Evan Campbell? What do you think the uh, what's the proper thing? Thank you, Evan Campbell, for Forget filling Jim. in. Forget Jim. He's up killing bears. Yeah, he's he's dead to us. Chris uh, Almeida helps us with research. More Press Box next week. More lukewarm takes. See you then, David. See you later, man.